Soul force. What is it? Who has it? Who needs it? As you learned from Reverend Lisa last week, both Mahatma Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. used the term soul force for their campaigns for justice. And they reminded us that there is a connection between love, whether it's love of truth, love of justice, love of others, and power. Dr. King said, power without love is reckless and abusive, and love without power is sentimental and anemic. Power at its best is love implementing the demands of justice. And justice at its best is power correcting everything that stands against love. I think King's words help us to understand soul force as a power of love implementing the demands of justice. Soul force is that vast inner strength that is required for taking nonviolent and creative action against oppression. Both Gandhi and King credited Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as a primary inspiration for their political protests. How many of you knew that? Yet often those verses from the book of Matthew seem to counsel pacifism a kind of passive acceptance of injustice and oppression. Here are some of the sayings from the Sermon on the Mount. They're probably familiar to you. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, give him your cloak as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go also the second mile. Marcus Borg, perhaps my favorite New Testament theologian, scholar, and author, who, who just died last month, actually, he said, for much of Christian history, people have heard these verses as affirming political acquiescence, not active resistance. Yet King and Gandhi interpreted Jesus' teachings as justification for political action. Which interpretation was right? Recent Jesus scholarship suggests that the teachings of the Sermon on the Mount were intended to offer the people of Jesus' day some creative nonviolent strategies for protesting and subverting oppression. To understand the subversive nature of Jesus' comments, we have to understand the customs of his first century Jewish homeland. In that context, the sayings that might to us on the surface seem passive and weak are really a rejection of both violence and passivity. In context, scholars argue that Jesus was advocating a third way an assertive but nonviolent form of protest. In an article entitled, The True Meaning of Turn the Other Cheek, Borg summarizes the work of Walter Wink, another Jesus scholar, 
And I'd like to share their interpretation of Jesus' third way using that turn-the-other-cheek example as an illustration of soul force. Soul force. An assertive yet non-violent response to oppression that is, I believe, ultimately grounded in love. Love of truth, love of justice, love of ourselves, love of others. So here's the, the saying again. If anyone strikes you on the right cheek, right cheek, turn the other cheek. So according to the New Testament scholars, this saying presumes that a superior is striking someone he considers beneath him, maybe a peasant or a slave. Why do they make that assumption? Because when fighting with an equal, a man would have used his fists. When reprimanding an inferior, he would have had to use his right hand to strike out because the left hand was reserved for unseemly or unclean uses. So it was against all the social mores of the time to touch another person with your left hand, even if you consider that person to be beneath you in social status. So think about it. If I was a nobleman of some sort and, and you were a peasant, in order to strike you on your right cheek, so you're facing me now, I would not break custom and use my unclean left hand, even though you were beneath me. I would not strike you with my right fist because fist fighting would communicate that I saw you as an equal, and I wouldn't want to communicate that to anyone else, especially anybody who might be watching. So in order to strike you on your right cheek, I would have to backhand you like that, right? I'd have to backhand you to get you on your right cheek. So what happens if you, the peasant, turn the other cheek? Now you've put me in a very awkward position. You've put your superior in a very awkward position. So he could continue to try to beat you using his right fist, but then we have that same problem that communicates that you're an equal and you know he doesn't want to do that. Um, he could resort to breaking that strong cultural taboo and backhand you with his left hand, but he really doesn't want to break that taboo either because people might be watching and, and that was more embarrassing to him, more offensive to him that he might be thought to be breaking that code. So, the only thing that he could do really was nothing or put himself in a dilemma. So when Jesus counseled the crowd of peasants to turn the other cheek, he was in effect teaching them to communicate to those who would oppress them I am your equal. I refuse to be humiliated anymore. If you are going to continue this oppressive behavior, then you are the one who will be demeaned by breaking the social code. The same is true of the other two sayings I mentioned. If you force me to give you my coat, then Jesus says, give him your cloak as well. So, that really means garment. Just take off your clothes. Give them away. But even though I 
am naked, you are the one who is demeaned. Because in Jesus' time, it was a far greater offense to look upon nakedness than it was to be naked. Now, if you make me carry your gear a mile and I carry it a second mile, in Jesus' world, you are the one breaking the law. Because Roman law permitted soldiers to force civilians to carry their gear a mile. But because there had been so many abuses, they actually legislated that you couldn't carry it for more than a mile. So if I carry your stuff that second mile, I'm putting you in a very disconcerting situation. You either risk getting in trouble if somebody knows I've already done my first mile, or you have to wrestle it away from me. You have to get in a struggle with me to get your stuff back. And you don't want to do that if I'm beneath your social status. You don't want to create a scene. This will draw attention to your wrongdoing. You see? So think about the civil rights movement in this country. Who came across as the bad guys when we saw German shepherds attacking people, when we saw peaceful marchers being sprayed with fire hoses? Same idea, same idea. Jesus' sayings from the Sermon on the Mount, his seemingly mild sayings, were actually potent ways of confounding and exposing injustice. King and Gandhi understood this, and they were clear that Jesus was counseling a radical new way of empowering the underclass. And so those little verses from the Gospel of Matthew are the foundation upon which King and Gandhi built their world-moving campaigns for social justice. Those teachings were, were the fodder for their soul force. When I was young, I dreamed of being a person with a powerful soul force, even though I wouldn't have called it that at the time. I wanted to make a big difference in the world. I wanted to be like Susan B. Anthony, like Rosa Parks, like Peace Pilgrim, or any number of famous women whose stories inspired me. I did a little survey with my daughter who's in her 30s, and she did a little Facebook survey with her friends. And I found out that today's young women and men are similarly inspired by Laverne Cox's advocacy for transgender people. Even by Harvey Milk, even though that was a generation or so ago, by Harvey Milk's advocacy for gay people. They are inspired by Emma Watson's feminism and her work with the He for She campaign to end the global inequalities faced by girls and women. They are inspired by Malala Yousafzai, the youngest ever Nobel Peace Prize winner, and her advocacy for the education of all girls. So certainly all the people I just named did or do have soul force. Gandhi and King demonstrated soul force, 
And if the stories about Jesus are any indication of the kind of man he was, he had soul force extraordinaire. Do we, do you and I have soul force? I think that we do, even if we don't make headlines, even if we don't get our picture on the television or our names in the history books. Here's another biblical tale that illustrates how and why I think we all have soul force or can have it if we want to cultivate it. This story is probably also familiar to many of you. However, I'm basing my version today on a reinterpretation shared with me by a friend of mine who's in seminary. Her name is Misha Lentz. There was a woman who went to the well, always by herself, in the middle of the day, when all the other women in town were busy doing other things. Although drawing water from the well was typically a social activity, she went alone. When the sun was high and the temperature was hot, and it wasn't because she liked the sweltering heat of the midday, it wasn't that she didn't like being with other people, she didn't have any friends among the women of this small village, and that didn't seem like it would change anytime soon. She went alone to the well because no one wanted to be with her. Although she was lonely, she wasn't always alone. She had children, lots of children, and sometimes there was a man around, but who knew how long that would last? Heaven knows men had left her enough times for her to fear it could happen again at any time. And if it did happen again, she wouldn't be very good at being alone for long. There would always be another man. Women didn't want anything to do with her, but there was never a shortage of men. It hurt her too much to think very hard about how much the men in her life had really cared about her. She knew it was more about what she could do for them. But being with someone for whatever reason and for however long seemed better to her than raising all those kids by herself. Her name was lost to history, but the Eastern Orthodox Christian tradition got tired of calling her the woman at the well. So they began calling her Fotin. Fotin was a Samaritan woman, not fully Jew, not fully Gentile, Accepted by neither, the Samaritans were looked down upon, ostracized, and as a woman with a bad reputation, Fotine was even ostracized by the Samaritans, her own people. She was an outcast among outcasts. Oh, the people all knew who she was. Jesus did too, and he didn't even live in Samaria. Fotine's reputation preceded her. But Jesus, the up-and-coming young rabbi who caused quite a stir with his radical teachings, decided he was going to take a quiet moment to himself. And he took a walk down to the well. 
Now, Fotine wasn't up on the latest news because she was too often it. <laughs> and she'd learned to mind her own business. So she approached the well that day with some discomfort seeing this stranger nearby, having no idea who he was. She didn't know that Jesus was kind of becoming a big deal, but Jesus knew of her. He could have greeted her by letting her know who he was, but he didn't do that. He could have greeted her by letting her know that he knew who and what she was and why she was there all by herself on that hot afternoon. But he didn't do that either. What he said was, hi, my name's Jesus. I'm thirsty. That's it. The first thing Jesus did when he met this woman was to acknowledge his own vulnerability, that he had a need, and he gave her the opportunity to be of assistance. Now, Fotine was a woman who had a bit of a trust issue with men, as you might imagine, and her response was something like, huh, I guess you should have brought a water bottle then. <laughs> and Jesus said, I know but I was hoping that maybe you would help me by drawing some water with your bucket. This rabbi was willing to drink from Fotine's container. Jesus was speaking kindly to this woman whom most people considered an untouchable. So Fotine's kind of tough facade began to soften, but she was still suspicious, so she said, how is it that you, a Jew, would ask me, a Samaritan, for water? And so began an exchange between perhaps new friends in which Fotine gave Jesus water, and he began sharing his gospel of universal inclusion with her. He tells her stories, and he gives her metaphors, and he doesn't dumb down one thing for her out of fear that she won't be able to understand him. When he speaks of the living water, she understands he is talking about the source of life, which is eternal, which is in all of us, which is for all of us, which is flowing through all of creation. So Jesus just drinks the water and has a conversation with another human being who is his equal. Fotine is startled. Jesus senses that she doesn't get treated this way ever. And he realizes that this woman doesn't quite know what he wants from her. No man speaks to her without wanting something, and it's usually not water. <laughs> So realizing the awkward tension of the moment, Jesus speaks very tactfully and kindly to her. And he says, I'd love to talk more with you. Why don't you go get your husband and come back? I'd love for all of us to chat together. And then Fotine allows her vulnerability to show. She says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus responds, that's all right. Invite your boyfriend, Fotine. I know you don't have a husband. You've had five of them. You're not married to the guy you live with now, but that's all right. It's okay. 
And Jesus wasn't trying to shame or impress her with his knowledge of her situation. I think he was just trying to say, yes, I misspoke when I said husband, but it's all the same to me. I know who you are. I know about your partner and your living situation, and I don't care what everybody thinks. I just see you, the woman who gave me water when I was thirsty. You met my need because you were here, and you had a bucket. Well, I am here, and I have a bottomless well of acceptance, and I thought you might need some of that. I believe that Jesus' interaction with Votini at the well that day was a stunning example of soul force. Soul force implies solidarity, connection, and compassion with and for those who are suffering from injustice. Jesus' interaction with Fotine was an act of inclusion. And each of us has the capacity to offer that kind of soul force in our everyday lives by meeting the Fotines that we happen to meet with love and compassion as equals. Jesus could have begun his social justice campaign, if it was that to some extent, by saying, hi, you probably know I'm a pretty famous rabbi and I'm here to bestow my mercy upon you and grant you party to all the spiritual knowledge I can impart. You sit on that side of the well, I'll stand over here, and I'll teach you stuff from a respectable distance because I know your history with men. He could have said those things. That would have started a whole different kind of conversation. But Jesus didn't do that. He said, hi, my name is Jesus. I'm thirsty. We don't know what happened to Jesus' friend, Fotine. We will probably never know her real name or what became of her life or the lives of her partners and children, but we know that her story still gets told over and over in different ways, in different kinds of faith communities all over the world. People still speak of the woman at the well, and we are affected by her, not just by how Jesus treated her, but by her story, because we know that we are as much like Fotin as we are like Jesus, and we relate to them both. So I think it's humility that really puts the power into soul force. It's realizing that we are all one. So when we're trying to make the world better for one person or for a whole group of people who are being mistreated by the system, we realize we're making the world better for ourselves, too. Soul force isn't about us making things better for them. No, it's about meeting as equals, working together, together, recognizing the value of every individual, and discovering how we might enrich one another's lives. So who needs soul force? We all do. Because as Dr. King's words remind us, injustice anywhere ultimately affects all of us.
all people everywhere. The New Testament examples that I've offered today and the real life examples of Gandhi and King and others suggest that soul force is rooted in the transformative power of love. A love that sees all people as worthy, as equal, a love that does not divide or exclude by class or race or gender or sexual orientation or any other category that defines any human being as inherently superior or inferior. Though I may not be a Susan B. Anthony, a Rosa Parks, or an Emma Watson, I do have some soul force in my blood. My grandfather protested the poor pay and working condition of poor miners, of coal miners in southern Illinois. They were poor coal miners. My grandmothers fed all of the hungry souls who came to their door during the Depression looking for food and work. My parents visited the sick and dying members of our church when others were uncomfortable and turned away. My aunt dared to pursue a doctorate and become a single career woman when that was not uh, an acceptable thing to do. And she counseled other young women to follow their dreams of higher education, including me. You may not be a Harvey Milk, a Gandhi, or a King, but I bet you have stories in your family too. You have soul force somewhere in your blood, in your DNA, in your history that will help you shine a light on injustice, whether small or large. As Unitarian Universalists, we definitely have soul force as evidence in our principles. We have soul force in our religious roots and heritage. I have ordered a film series called long strange journey that I hope to offer this spring so that you can get that wonderful picture of our heritage and see the shining examples of soul force we have both from our Unitarian and our Universalist ancestors. We may not make it into the history books as individuals. We may not make front page news, but we are powerful. And as the song we are about to sing reminds us, if we cannot speak, see if we cannot sing like angels, if we cannot speak before thousands, we can give from deep within ourselves. We can change the world with our love. Let's sing. <laughs> 